If our ushers will come forward. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before your throne, Lord, and give back just a portion of what the many blessings you've given us, Lord. We pray that you would take and use it to strengthen this church, to spread the gospel across this city, county, this state, and across this world, Lord. We ask this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.
oldest brother, Don, was born. There was one day when, you know, she was walking out the door. My dad said, where are you going? She said, I'm going to go have Don baptized. He said, by who? She said, the Roman Catholic priest. And he said, oh, we don't do that. And she said, oh, yes, we do. <laughs> and there it began. As you might think, you know, there are things that don't seem to matter a lot until things get interesting, right? But these small matters of religion are really big matters of religion, right? So they kind of worked it out, and they split the difference, and they ended up going to a Baptist church, and then later on they went to a Pentecostal conversion. I can tell just by looking in your eyes who has been through this experience, right? They got Holy Ghost fire, and we all moved to Texas, and my dad went to Christ for the Nation Seminary there, and he became a Pentecostal pastor. And from the very beginning, I was a little bit of a disappointment to him, because while they were all shaking, I just wanted to sit down. But I learned it all, and I learned to understand. But, you know, and after a while, you know, I started going to a, a, a Baptist minister in uh, California after we moved out that way, named John MacArthur. And, of course, John MacArthur's not quite as Pentecostal. <laughs> you can understand what I'm saying. <laughs> but I did learn a different understanding of these texts, right? And one of the most important happens in Acts chapter 2. Because the day of Pentecost is a big day for every Christian. Now in Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost, penta meaning 50, this is 50 days after, they were all in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. Now, every time it says tongues, I'm going to say, I'm going to move ahead from the King James Bible, which I was raised with, and move into English, which Americans speak, right? And I'm going to say languages, because the proper translation of this word is not tongues from the old English, because we speak in a tongue under the right? It's languages, they spoke in other languages. And it's important to do that because tongues in the contemporary church has taken on an entirely different cognitive connotation in which we interpret the word differently and we get a theological difference that ain't in the text. They didn't speak in different tongues. They spoke in different languages. That's American, right? Each one spoke in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And this will tell us more about what this event means and what's happening. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Same word. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not these who are speaking Galileans? Now, Galileans were known for a couple of things. Number one, they had a strong southern drawl. Maybe y'all know a little about what I'm talking about, right? So you can always tell a Galilean. That's why they knew Peter was with the guys, right, when he denied Jesus, because he had a twang, and they knew it, right? So at this point, they know they're all Galileans. Galileans are known for another thing besides their twang, and it wasn't book learning. I'm sorry, it just wasn't. So also at the same time, they're not known for being vastly educated people that knew a lot of different languages, and how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, 
residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, that would have been converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tones the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. You notice how many times when God does something awesome, people accuse them of being drunk? That'll tell you a little about being a prophet, right? But Peter, so not an obscure figure in the New Testament, right? Peter himself, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you, and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, I want you to very carefully track on this amazing passage here, which in the contemporary church is interpreted in scandalous and strange ways, completely dissonant from what Peter himself said this verse means, right? He said, this thing you're seeing, these people speaking in different tongues, even though they have not learned them through ordinary means, and the Spirit is giving them utterance, this is the fulfillment of this passage. It's not about the end of the world, it's not about anything else than this. But notice, this language is frightening to us, right? People are seeing dreams, people are having visions, the sun in the heavens above, there are wonders and signs, and on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Are they seeing blood and fire and vapor of smoke? Now you have to remember that all through seminary and through most of my Christian life, I have been accused many times of being a wooden literalist with the text. I take it just as it comes. If it says something that I think is crazy, I figure I don't understand it. If people try to normalize the text or interpret it in a way wildly different from its writing, I don't go there with them. At the same time, this is what Peter says this text means. The blood and the fire and the, and the smoke is the coming of the Holy Spirit into the heart of the Christian in such a way as that it's different, not wholly different, but approximately different from what anyone had in the Old Covenant. Now you have to, you have to walk a minute in those shoes because this isn't common teaching, this is the old teaching of the church. All through the time of the Reformation, they all thought the Old Testament saints, the Jews, were full of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? How do you think they were raising the dead? How do you think they were parting the oceans? How do you think they were calling down fire from heaven? Because they too had the Holy Spirit, but not in the clarity and in the force and in the power that we have it in the New Covenant, because Christ has come and revealed the Holy Spirit even to us in deeper and more fundamental and powerful ways than they had ever known in the Old Covenant. Really? Hey, I'm not as close to God as Moses. He's Old Covenant, right? Shouldn't I be closer to God than him? But he used to walk around with God. They spent like 40 days together hanging out and chewing the fat. You know, I haven't had that. 
Abraham, when God comes to him, they sit around and have lunch. They don't have lunch with God. The idea that the Old Testament saints, the Christians before the coming of Christ, did not know him as well as we do is just kind of false. But there are things that we know, frankly, that they did not. And there may be things that we experience that they did not. Because under the law was signs, types, and shadows which taught them about Christ to come, even though he had not come yet. And now he's come. And so we see things clearly that they saw in the distance, right? And yet it does not mean that they did not have normal interactions with the Holy Spirit, even as we do. But not like this. Not like this. Okay, now he says a few other things. And these are the most disturbing things in this text, which is why we love them, from verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, because remember, he's talking to the people in Jerusalem. They've seen the stuff, right? This Jesus delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, this is an issue of concurrence, right? The two things happening at the same time. Did they take Jesus and nail him to a cross and kill him because they wanted to fulfill the definite plan and foreknowledge of God? Is that why they did it? They think to themselves, I think we'll fulfill the definite plan and foreknowledge of God today. Let's take the Lord of God of glory and stick him on a tree. Is that what they were thinking? Every thought of their mind was evil all the time. They had an innocent man and a guilty man, and they picked the innocent man, and they had him beaten, and they had him scorched and disfigured more than any man. And they laid him down on a tree, and they put nails in his hands and feet, and they crucified him and mocked him and scorned him, even though he was more innocent than any man. The evil that they wanted to do in their own heart fell into the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You have to remember, if there's one thing that God promoted all through the Bible in the coming of the Messiah, and that was prophesied by every Old Testament prophet, that the entire Old Testament is about, it's about the coming, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? So was it by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God? Yes, it was. Was it implemented through the mere evil plans and desires of men's hearts who hated God? Yes, it was. Now, this has a lot to do with how Christians understand evil. Even in the hearts of men and the things that they do, when Nebuchadnezzar, as we've been going through Daniel, went into Jerusalem and he killed off the kings and he took people like Daniel back, was he doing it for the glory of God? No. Was it part of God's definite plan? It was. Jeremiah says it. He saw Second Chronicles says it. This is about a basic and foundational knowledge of God in the Christian way. It's different from every other religion and understanding of God. You have to remember this. The Muslims, they have like faith and stuff like that. God's almost an abstract. He's almost not even personal. He's just blunt force trauma, right? Our God is a meticulous guider of men and nations within the course of history. You remember how some of the founding fathers were accused of being deists, and some of them were. Deists had this idea of the world that God kind of lines it up like a clock, right? And he lets it go, and now things just happen, and he sits back and watches, but he's not that interested. That's not the Christian God either. God's meticulous care 
of the scope and plan of the universe to his glory and for the ultimate good of everyone who is elect and found in him is what God's doing with this universe. Every evil thing that happened to Jesus was evil in and of itself. And God holds the people that did it responsible for offending his son. But that doesn't mean that in some way beyond our understanding or even our rational ability to suss out all the causes and effects, that God did not use it for his ultimate glory. That he did not know it was going to happen and did not even guide history to bring it about. Let's take a look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Just to get in a little more trouble. Now here you all know chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. So famous, so awesome. If you could fit it on a bumper sticker, you totally would. But nobody has time to read it during a red light. He goes back to the subject of languages. And he warms us up for chapter 14. And he explains what happened in chapter 2. You have to remember that in the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis, everybody spoke the same language. Everybody was one family, constructively, inferring from the text, as they all had one language, and they were all descendants of Adam and Eve. They were all one family, they were all one race, and then they went to Babel, and they got a little bit big in their own minds, right? And what did God do? He confused the languages. Every group and every family got their own language and they couldn't communicate with each other and they started to have friction with each other and they separated themselves over the face of the earth, right? And when Pentecost comes, when the Holy Spirit is given, the languages are given back. Now there's going to be one language in a sense. The language is not English. The language is Christ. And so we're seeing almost a reversal of the fall of man in the Tower of Babel in the coming of the Holy Spirit. So that now, as far as every nation, tribe, race, and tongue being separated, in a strange way, in the coming of Pentecost, they're being drawn back together in one people. One not by necessarily blood or race, but one in Christ. If I speak in the tongues, we're going to say languages, just so it doesn't get confusing. Chapter 13, verse 1. Verse Corinthians. If I speak in the languages of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It doesn't boast. It doesn't brag. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. Love isn't irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Then he says this, as for prophecies, they'll pass away, and as for tongues, languages, they will cease. Now here's the thing. He assumes that as much as we 
as Christians know we're supposed to love each other. And we do it really so well, right? That we still might need a little tutoring. So he spends this entire time telling us what love is like so we can really get an insight into it. And this is very different from the legal definition of love, right? Love is, right? Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't covet. We get that. Those are laws. They're very easy to apprehend and understand, and you can usually fit them in one line, right? And now it goes into the subjective aspect of love that has to do with the internal workings of the human heart. And if you feel uncomfortable reading it, you should. It's a high standard, and there's only been one of us ever that has kept it completely in thought, word, and deed, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The rest of us, we break it every day in thought, word, and deed. When you read this definition of love, it starts to get easy to see why we admit we've sinned every day in thought, word, and deed. We've broken this every day, right? You count the Ten Commandments, on a good day, I will not have broken several of them. <laughs> you, start, you start to do it like this, I've really broken a lot, haven't I? This is why we have to say we've all fallen short of the glory of God. <clears throat> but as for languages, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So these things, even like tongues and even like the spiritual gifts, they're for a time to advance a certain thing, but they don't really have perpetuity, right? When you're standing in the face of God and in the presence of Jesus Christ, some of the things that happen in this time of transition between the apostles and the ongoing nature of the church just have no necessity in them. You know, even hope. Hope only makes any sense if you don't have it yet. You remember being like eight and waiting for Christmas or your birthday, right? You're waiting. Every day gets long, right? And the weeks drag. I have one little girl that has asked me several times over the last few days, when is my birthday? Because it's going to be awesome. At the same time, we're in the presence of Christ. We will no longer long for Christ. We will no longer live in hope. We will have the thing that we hope for. And so even hope itself is not an eternal thing. It's a thing we need for now. So faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. How can love be greater than hope? You won't always live in hope, but you will always live in love, right? Now then he says this, pursue love then. And earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially if you may prophesy. Now, I know that's a loaded term. We've been taught that it means all kinds of things. But we mainly take it in that Old Testament sense of somebody that can tell the future. But all the prophets didn't tell the future. What prophesy mostly means is actually the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. It's not only talking about something strange and miraculous. though it is a gift that is given for the perpetuity and the strengthening of the church through time. Spiritual gifts, especially prophecy, for the one who speaks in a language speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him. He utters mysteries in his spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. That's not talking about telling the future, is it? 
The one who speaks in a language builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in languages, even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in a language unless someone interprets. Now the fact that there can be an interpretation has a lot to do with the fact that they were speaking languages. Okay, you all know the Apostle Paul, right? Different than any of the other apostles, one abnormally born. He was born that day that Jesus called him from heaven and revealed himself to him, blinded him, knocked him off his horse, and said, now you're going to serve me. You've been against the church, now you're going to serve the church. And then he becomes the greatest evangelist of the first century, right? And he travels the entire Roman world three different times, three missionary journeys. He's going through all of these different countries. And you have to remember, they had no cell phones. When he showed up somewhere, he could not Google Translate. How do you think he went to the Germans and preach them the gospel. Was he like the Wycliffe guys? He took three years to study German and then translated a few pages of the Bible into their language? I love those guys, but that's hard, right? The Apostle Paul just showed up in Germany and said, <laughs> and God gave him this miraculous power to be able to communicate the gospel to them. I love it when the music kicks in right on cue. <laughs> communicate, no, turn it back on, to, com <laughs> to communicate the gospel to them in the language they had that he did not learn through ordinary means. The gift of tongues is a gift of speaking in which you can speak the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truths of scripture to them, even though you have not learned through ordinary means. In other words, it wasn't just some kind of frilly noises in the air that have no, no meaning that we can understand. And obviously, as he's already said, it's not the tongue of angels. If you were really speaking the tongue of angels, who could understand you? Angels, not useful down here, right? And so the gift of tongues gave him the ability to go to places and speak to people that he never would have been able to speak to. And if we raise tongues to this standard of a miraculous gift of God, a lot of these silly, willy-nilly interpretations that happen in the church right now, where there's just somebody stumbling around the stage and falling on the ground and yelling nonsense, that's not the gift of tongues. That's the gift of gravity. You're just falling. If you fly, that would be impressive. If you fall, that's not the spirit. That's tripping over a microphone cord, right? So the gift of tongues is very important in Scripture, but we have to be careful to take it as what it says. Now, brothers, if I come to you and speak in a language, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation, knowledge, prophecy, or teaching? If even like he... First of all, he corrects their misinterpretation. And their misinterpretation was that it wasn't a specific language. Isn't that interesting? If the lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what's played? And if the bugle doesn't give an indistinct sound, you know what a bugle is like, right? Well, that's not a good bugle. It's supposed to right? Distinct notes mean they have a distinctive meaning. So with yourselves, if with your tongue, you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. That's not a compliment. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, but none is without its own meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. So, 
with yourselves, since your ego for manifestations of the Spirit strive to excel in building of the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. In other words, he might not even know what he's saying. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. And so he's laying in a requirement to not just go around making noises into the air. I will pray with my mind also. I will praise with my spirit. I will sing with my mind. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. And so, is a gift of the Holy Spirit something for just self-edification? Or are they given for the building up of your neighbor? If it's all about you, it's probably not the Holy Spirit. It's probably you. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than any of you. And that line there kind of puts the nail in the coffin of certain interpretations. Why would the Apostle Paul speak in tongues more than any of them? Because he traveled the world three times preaching the gospel to people he did not know the languages of. And there were many more languages then than there are now. Nevertheless, in church, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So especially in a church. I told you guys this story once before, but when I was about, I don't know, 11 or 12, we were going to a church called River of Life Christian Fellowship. And the pastors were Amos and Shirley Mestis. And one time Shirley was preaching, and she was preaching on the power of the Spirit, and everybody in the church was speaking in tongues at the same time. And frankly, as a child, it was not edifying to me. It was kind of frightening. I remember thinking at the time, even as a child, I wonder if all of these people have lost their minds. Right? And I went up to her in absolutely the best spirit, not knowing about any of the controversies having to do with this. I was too young to know any of them. And I asked her about the verse that says... If anyone speaks in a tongue, one, two, or at the most three should speak, and only if there's an interpretation. Here at this church, everybody speaks at the same time. And she lit into me like a wild cat in a bag. <laughs> telling me I was quenching the Holy Spirit. I didn't even know how to quench the Holy Spirit. But at the time, she did say... That is the old revelation for before the new outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you honestly, it took me years to understand what she was saying. Because I was just kind of going, yes, man. Right? This is the Word of God. It's not changing. There's nothing new that's going to come for you. If you want something new and different, you're going to have to find a different religion. This is the only one we've got. If the word of God says that if a true tongue is being spoken, only one or two or at the most three should speak, and only if there's an interpretation, then that's it. And if I go to any place where the entire church stands up and starts babbling and nonsense, and there's no interpretation, my next step is going to be for the door. Because he's already said, that's not from God. Here's the next thing that he says here. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants and evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law, it's written, by people of strange tongues, by lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. Even then, they do not listen to me. Tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. So, I mean, there's the thing, right? 
He's saying that people that don't agree with his position, they're immature in their thinking. They don't quite understand scripture. They don't quite understand the revelation that's given here. And if you have people speaking in different languages and you don't know what they're saying, it's not a sign of God's blessing. It's a sign of his judgment. Isn't that powerful? Doesn't that negate so many things that we've learned in the contemporary church where they focus upon the spirit being given with all of these different things and it becomes like a circus, it becomes like a show, it becomes like a carnival, while at the same time, the spirit that God gives is all about knowledge and understanding. Now this does lay into 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's just move a couple verses back. Because we know that you all have the Holy Spirit. The primary gift of the Holy Spirit is faith. Here in chapter 11, before he gives us chapter 12 and 13 about spiritual gifts, before he gives us chapter 14, he tells us about the Lord's Supper. This too is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. It is a perpetual manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Notice one of the things that's the most confusing about the Bible is that many of the most important things that happen are invisible. They're not tangible. You can't touch them with your hands. Sometimes God gives us a sign that we can touch with our hands, that we can taste with our mouth as a condescension to our weakness. And in this specific case, he's also given us something that we can taste and something that we can eat, not because it's magic, not because it magically transforms into the flesh and blood of Jesus, because he died on a hill outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. He rose from the dead, and he's seated right now in his body at the right hand of the Father in heaven. We're not going to eat him. But that doesn't mean that he does not choose to spiritually feed us in a concurrence between the sign and the thing signified by the sign. What I'm telling you, and I'll defend it if I have to, there's a spiritual relationship that God himself imposes on the relationship between the sign and the thing signified by the sign. Now, what's the thing signified by the bread and the wine? Jesus Christ is life, death, and resurrection, right? And this is the sign, simple bread and wine. But there's a blessing that is implied that you get through this process that you don't get nowhere else. This is it. And so he calls all of his people that have professed faith in Christ and that have been baptized and come into his church to participate in this meal. Not because it's a mere remembrance, even though it calls it a remembrance, but because it's also a participation in the body and blood of Christ. Not physically, not mortally. It would be so scandalous and boring if it were merely physical, right? But spiritually, even though we don't have to feel anything, even though we don't have to fall on the floor, spiritually immature, we have a promise that spiritually we will be fed by Christ when we take bread and we take wine. So at this time of the, oh, I'm sorry, we're not doing it that way this time. <laughs> so here's why it's this way. We've gone to meticulous uh, extent to make sure that no one has touched this, that no one has breathed on it. It's all separated into individual compartments. The reason that you have to come up and get it instead of it being delivered to you by a deacon or an elder is because we would like for you to not touch anyone else's uh, containers. <clears throat> so you'll come up and you'll take one of the bread and you'll take one of the wine 
and you'll go back to your seat, and we'll consume them together. Uh, I know that people have a million different opinions about you know the whole virus and everything, but we're just going to do everything the way they told us to do it. How about that? And you know, if we err on the side of caution, so be it. We can be too careful, right? Better than not being careful or not. So. Uh, Lord our God and Father, we thank you for the great gifts that you've given your people. Nothing more than your Son, Jesus Christ, and the work that he's done for us on his cross, that he died that we might live, and now we live, Lord God, to honor you. We thank you, Lord God, and pray that you would set aside these elements, this simple bread and juice, Lord God, from a common to a sacred use, that no longer, Lord God, does it represent your feeding of the body, but also feeding of our souls. And we thank you for this in the name of Jesus Christ, Amen. Please go ahead when you're ready and come forward.
Yeah, that was pretty exact. I <laughs> 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 love it when a player comes together. <laughs> now, just to read a tiny bit from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, it says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. How do we do that? I speak so as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Then in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, from verse 23, it says, For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take, eat. And it's okay that as you chew the bread, you taste the salt, and as it goes down into your body, and so nourishes the entire body, that is meant by God to be a pictorial representation of the feeding upon Christ who makes our spirit strong and brings it to spiritual life. Verse 25, in the same way also he took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, take and drink. Now in this, it's really proclaimed to us that all of you are members of the body of Christ and all of you are full of the Holy Ghost. So even if you only have one language and that's English, that's the one you've got to do this very holy thing of the proclamation of the gospel in the evangelization of the entire world. It doesn't matter if God only gives you one person in your entire life to share the gospel with, share it with zeal and with joy. And if he's given you the gift of gab, gab your brains out, right? So in this understanding, what we learn is not something far off or or something which we're incapable of apprehending. What we learn is that the human being is an instrument for the glory of God, for the praise of God, and for the sharing of God between us and our neighbor. And a lot of that's done by good works, and a lot of it can only be done right here. So let's pray. Lord our God, this gift that you've given us, this great gift that you've given us, we praise you, Lord God. We thank you for this proclamation of your death until you come, and that we are allowed, Lord God, to come together at your table and to participate in this meal through which you preach to us the gospel by mere form and shadow. We thank you for all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Please rise as we sing the last hymn, O Sacred Head. Number 142.
You've had a few hard weeks that have been turned into another harder week, and things are a little crazy out there, but we know whom we serve. And he's got all of these things in his hand. And he knows that you're his child, and he knows what you need. So I'm going to send you out now, and I want you to be ready. Are you ready? <laughs> you almost sound ready. <laughs> Are you ready? Yes. May the Lord your God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. <laughs>